we often read to be transported. And, you know, at this time when we're all very stuck in one place, it's it's a big part of why we're reading. And and this book does that for you too, yeah? It, it takes you to a place. Oh, oh, yeah. You know, it's as if we've gone through passport control and, and we're getting in the taxi and we're heading to the city. And you, you just feel so connected to the city when reading this book. Al Jazeera's senior correspondent Mohammed Jamjoum, like many of us, is almost into month three of lockdown. And it's starting to feel like we are exhausting the limits of human experience within four walls. For those who are lucky enough to tell stories for a living, to go to the scene and tell us what's happening, there's a specific kind of limit to this lockdown. I am used to being ready to, to move at practically any minute. Uh, a, a story breaks somewhere in the world, anywhere from Nepal to Iraq to Bangladesh, and I am running out the door. I don't remember the last time I was home for longer than maybe just about a week or just over a week. I have now been in my flat for over two months, pretty much all the time. This time last year, I was in Sudan when the revolution was happening there. And before that, I was in Iraq. Before that, Israel-Palestine. So yeah, it's, it's been a shock. You know, I'm watering my plants and getting excited about watching my gardenia blossom. <laughs> I, I don't even recognize myself. I mean, what is going on? With nowhere to travel to, our journalists have been left to transport themselves. And we wanted to hear how they're doing it. So today, we're talking to a few of them. A little about escapism, a little about identity, a little about resilience. We're going from 14th century Iran to today's New York. Long story short, we're talking about books. I'm Graylin Brashear, filling in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. You say you know these streets pretty well. The city knows you better than any living person because it has seen you when you are alone. We caught up first with Mohammed Jamjoum, who you just heard from. He's reading from The Colossus of New York by Colson Whitehead. Consider what all your old apartments would say if they got together to swap stories. They could piece together the starts and finishes of your relationships, complain about your wardrobe and musical tastes, gossip about who you are after midnight, Seven J says, so that's what happened to Lucy. I knew it would never work out. Cherish your old apartments and pause for a moment when you pass them. Pay tribute, for they are the caretakers of your reinventions. Our streets are calendars containing who we were and who we will be next. We see ourselves in this city every day when we walk down the sidewalk and catch our reflections in store windows seek ourselves in this city each time we reminisce about what was there 15, 10, 40 years ago, because all our old places are proof that we were here. One day the city we built will be gone, and when it goes, we go. When the buildings fall, we topple too. Maybe we become New Yorkers the day we realize that New York will go on without us. To put off the inevitable, we try to fix the city in place, remember it as it was, doing to the city what we would never allow to be done to ourselves. New York City does not hold our former selves against us. Perhaps we can extend the same courtesy. 
Our old buildings still stand because we saw them, moved in and out of their long shadows. We're lucky enough to know them for a time. They are part of the city we carry around. It is hard to imagine that something will take their place. But at this very moment, the people with the right credentials are considering how to fill the craters. The cement trucks will roll up and spin their bellies. The jackhammers will rattle. And after a while, the postcards of the new skyline will be available for purchase. Naturally, we will cast a wary eye toward those new kids on the block. But let's be patient and not judge too quickly. We were new here too once. There's something about that book and that passage in particular that is comforting because it's a reminder of permanence in the face of human impermanence. It talks about a city that's grounded in time and is watching all of this go by. Is that, mm -hmm. is that part of what draws you to that passage? Yeah, absolutely. And I think reading that right now at a time when things seem so tenuous and, and when we don't know when all this is going to end and, and what life is going to look like after it does, yeah, it just, it's able to put me there, soothe me a bit, and also dazzle me with the way it's written because I feel like it captures the spirit of the city almost better than anything else I've ever read about the city, what it's like to, to live there to experience New York. That spirit is something I think we can find in a lot of cities all over the world. The idea that the place is part of us, watching us even. And it's something many of us are feeling separated from right now. One of those touchstones, for me at least, is bookstores. I'll get to that a little later, but it's something Muhammad said too. For anybody who follows you on Instagram, you post a lot about bookstores and you make a point of going to independent bookstores wherever you go. Why do you do that? Why is that one of the first things you do when you get to a new city? You know, a bookstore is like a treasure map in a new city. You go in and you get clues about the place from the books that are displayed, from the book recommendations by the staff. You learn all about that city's history, its culture, its cuisine, its art, its architecture. It's like everything you need to know is right there between the pages of all the books on the shelves. And it's um, sometimes it can be hard to describe, but there's this quote from this uh, Stephen King book called The Wastelands. And there's a passage where Stephen King describes a character walking through a door, and he describes this bell jingling overhead. And then he writes, the mild, spicy smell of old books hit him, and the smell was somehow like coming home. And that's what it feels like. So even though you're in this new place, you go to these wonderful shops, most of them mom and pop shops that are servicing these communities. And it's a journey all on its own. Muhammad remembers these places he visits, and he wanted to check back in on one that stuck with him. It's called the Free Thinking Zone in Athens. He first went there when the store had its first big crisis, the Greek financial crisis in 2015. He said it's this store with floor-to-ceiling books, a communal table, for activists to gather. And at that time, it was totally empty. But the owner, Areti Yorgili, kept it alive. So I got in touch with her again once I was seeing how bookstores were suffering. And it was very problematic because the store, uh, I think now it may have reopened or at least partially reopened. But when we did the story, it was shut down. It's been very hard because uh, we, the biggest problem right now is the, uh, the, store, the, the lockdown of the stores. And the lockdown uh, will lead us eventually to problems with liquidity. And she was really worried about how or if they would survive. And, you know, she was talking about to have gotten through 
various financial crises and then, you know, really be doing well again and now to be confronted with a, a completely different kind of threat that it was all very unsettling. And now she's worried about even if the bookstore reopens completely with social distancing, how are you going to get the people in there that are engaged? How are you going to get the, the loyal customers that come in there, you know, to, to debate and to argue and to appreciate art? It's one of the key things we're missing in this time, community. And that's why we wanted to talk to some loyal readers themselves. So we asked to hear from some of you, our listeners. Hello, my name is Tawny. I'm from Melbourne, Australia, and I'm reading the book Women Who Run With The Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. My name's Akinola Davis. I'm a Nigerian based in London. I've read two books by the author Tomi Adeyemi, Children of Blood and Bone and Children of Virtue and Vengeance. And I find a lot of comfort in hearing of worlds that sound familiar, but are totally fantastical, especially in these times. We also heard from a few other Al Jazeera journalists. Lauren Whitney Gottbreath is the Americas editor for aljazeera.com. So if I look back at my coronavirus bookshelf, if that's what you want to call it, a lot of the writing that I've been drawn to over the last few months has been stories that are very much rooted in some sort of reality. And I think I've really been drawn to this kind of work because the things that we were experiencing three and four months ago are are sort of just passing us by. And I think I've been searching in my reading for those experiences, even if they're about haunting things or troubling things. And one thing that I think really highlights that is, um, and it might sound cliche, um, but it's Albert Camus' uh, The Plague. And for those of you who haven't read it or heard of it, it's about a fictional town that's described as any other sort of fictional town that's been hit by a plague. And the scene I want to read from is sort of at the beginning of the book. And they've just come to the realization that it is the plague that is hit. There have been as many plagues as wars in history, yet always plagues and wars take people equally by surprise. When a war breaks out, people say it's too stupid. It can't last long. But though a war may well be too stupid, that doesn't prevent its lasting. Stupidity has a knack of getting its way, as we should see if we were not always so much wrapped up in ourselves. In this respect, our townsfolk were like everybody else, wrapped up in themselves. In other words, they were humanists. They disbelieved in pestilences. A pestilence isn't a thing made to man's measure. Therefore, we tell ourselves that pestilence is a mere bogey of the mind, a bad dream that will pass away. But it doesn't always pass away, and from one bad dream to another, it is men who pass away, and the humanists first of all, because they haven't taken their precautions. They fancy themselves free, and no one will ever be free so long as there are pestilences. We also heard from senior correspondent Stephanie Decker. She's the unlikely gardener you heard at the beginning of the episode. I had a birthday recently when friends were asking me what I wanted. I asked them to give me their favorite book uh, and inscribe in it, write in it why they like it. So I was given quite a few books, but I never really picked any of them up. What I'm reading right now is Norwegian Wood by the Japanese author Murakami. And I will read a passage from it early on. And I think it's quite relevant uh, because he's talking about remembering his past and about how memories fade. And I think 
you know, on the flip side of that right now, we are we are remembering our past. We are thinking about where we are in life and what the future may hold. Writing from memory like this, I often feel a pang of dread. What if I've forgotten the most important thing? What if somewhere inside me, there is a dark limbo where all the truly important memories are heaped and slowly turning into mud? Be that as it may, it's all I have to work with. Clutching these faded, fading, imperfect memories to my breast, I go on writing this book with all the desperate intensity of a starving man sucking on bones. This is the only way I know to keep my promise to Naoko. Once, long ago, when I was still young, when the memories were far more vivid than they are now, I often tried to write about her, but I couldn't produce a line. I knew that if that first line would come, the rest would pour itself onto the page, but I could never make it happen. Everything was too sharp and clear so that I could never tell where to start. The way a map that shows too much can sometimes be useless. Now though, I realize that all I can place in the imperfect vessel of writing are imperfect memories and imperfect thoughts. that theme of loss is something we're all grappling with right now. We heard it from a few different people, including senior correspondent Imran Khan, who's become something of a poetry faint under lockdown. I've taken a real deep dive into poetry, and I started to read more poetry than perhaps I've ever read in my life. And predominantly right now, I've been reading a lot of Persian poetry. And there's a, particularly with, you know, pre-19th century poetry, I think, you know, this is a world before iPhones and like computers. It's all about kind of, you know, fig trees and orchards and, and things that we just don't hear about anymore because we're too busy jetting around the world and kind of, you know, seeing things superficially. So it's nice to be able to read people whose entire worldview was the city that they were born in, the city that were brought up in, the city that they were buried in because they didn't travel that much. The poet that I've been kind of focusing on is a, is a woman, actually, called Jahan Malik Khatun. Now, Jahan Malik Khatun was a princess in Shiraz in the mid-14th century. And it was very unusual at the time for women to write poetry. In fact, there were hardly any female poets around at the time. But then her story sort of disappears. She's forgotten completely. Will you take us there? Will you read a little bit? I can. Now, the poem I've chosen is called From Now On I Have Sworn. And there's a line in it that sums up to me how I feel about my kind of job being taken away by this sort of coronavirus pandemic. And it says, I gave my head, heart and soul and faith to you. So who informed you killing me is a legal thing to do? Anyway, let me read you a little bit. I won't let dreams deceive me since pointless dreams have made my spirit almost leave me. My poor heart dreamed of you so earnestly, it seems. Your image turned my flesh into the stuff of dreams. I gave my head, heart and soul and faith to you. So who's informed you killing me is a legal thing to do? Have mercy on me now, pity my wretchedness. I've reached the limits of exhaustion and distress. Now, by his doe-like eyes, the full moon of his face, his eyebrows arch that's like the new moon in its grace. By his bright cheeks, the rose and jasmine mingled there. By his moist lips and by the sweet scent of his hair. 
by my parched thirsty lips, by meeting him at night, by his proud stride, and by his sapling slender height, I swear that in this night of his long absence, my poor face is pallid as the pale moon in the sky. I swear that I despair of heart and soul, and of both this world and the next, without him and his love. You're like the nightingale, he said, whose lovesick woe harangues the rose. Poor wretch, stop whining now and go. So <laughs> I love the end of that. Kind of really beautiful poetry, and then there's a kind of a joke at the end. <laughs> it is so beautiful, and I can't, I can't help but think about what you said, that, you know, you are bringing your own longing to this poem about longing. And is that how you feel about what you do? Yeah, I mean, it's a privilege. What we do is a privilege. It's, it's the, the ability to shine light on situations, report on situations, do something. But if you take away the travel, if you take away the going to places and seeing situations that other people would not see, you take away a huge part of why I do what I do and why my contemporary correspondents do what they do. It's by looking into the face of a child that you see their pain and you can report properly on what they're going through. It's by looking a politician in the eye and figuring out whether he's lying through his or her teeth at you. It's, it's having that human emotional connection taken away from you that actually affects you in a way that I didn't think was possible because I'd never thought about it. I'd never thought we were going to be in a position where we couldn't travel. And in this time where travel has gone from a luxury to a memory, we're more dependent than ever on the stories we've heard, which is why Mohammed Jamjum and I were both thinking about the future of bookstores, especially in the Amazon age. I mean, if you lose independent bookstores, you lose a huge part of a city, of a neighborhood. I, I oftentimes think that a good book is an escape but a great bookstore is also an escape. It's an escape from everyday life. You go in there, you are transported in the way that great books transport you. In every city that I've called home or loved in more than a passing kind of way, there is that bookstore, or more than one. I count myself very lucky to now live a few blocks from a store just like this in Washington, D.C., It's called Capitol Hill Books. It's in an old row house that's basically just stuffed to the gills with books. This is one of the owners, Kyle Burke. He and his staff came up with a really clever way to stay in business safely during these last few weird months. He's putting together a grab bag of books for a customer. Kind of trying to get into their head a little bit so I can, you know, surmise what they would like. See, the first thing I'm going to pull is this novel, The Burning Girl by Claire Massoud, traces the story of a couple of friends over a long period of time. I think she might enjoy that. It works like this. You tell the staff the genres, authors, and subjects you like and how much you want to spend, and they'll send you a stack of books in the mail. So we'll send her a photo of these, see if she likes them, and then if, if so, we'll get them shipped off to her. I already have too many stacks, but obviously I could not pass this up. I now have some new westerns and some very fascinating historical nonfiction to read. Because this is how we're getting through. We're piling up titles, 
we're turning to old favorite authors and revisiting words that have soothed and enthralled us in the past. And we're sharing them with others. So I want to leave you with some of those words about a man named Saeed. He's a character from Exit West, a beautiful novel by the British-Pakistani writer Mohsen Hamid. Saeed prayed even more, several times a day, and he prayed fundamentally as a gesture of love for what had gone and would go and could be loved in no other way. When he prayed, he touched his parents, who could not otherwise be touched, and he touched a feeling that we are all children who lose our parents, all of us, every man and woman and boy and girl, and we too will all be lost by those who come after us and love us. And this loss unites humanity, unites every human being, the temporary nature of our beingness and our shared sorrow, the heartache we each carry and yet too often refuse to acknowledge in one another. And out of this, Saeed felt it might be possible, in the face of death, to believe in humanity's potential for building a better world. And so he prayed as a lament, as a consolation, and as a hope. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexander Locke and me, Graylin Brashear, with Priyanka Tilve, Dina Kispa, Amy Walters, and Ney Alvarez. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. And when I'm not talking books, I'm Al Jazeera's head of audio. If you want to check out any of these titles that were mentioned in this episode, just look in our episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast. We'll be back.